Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. Welcome back, everybody, uh, to Sounds of the World podcast. Um, today, we have a pleasure to speak with a wonderful saxophonist uh, composer, and he began his college education at the University of Southern Mississippi, where he received his Bachelor of Music in Music History and Literature and a Master of Music in Music Theory. He then went on to Florida State for a PhD in Music Theory and Composition. He previously worked at the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University, but now is an Associate Professor of Music at Mars Hill University in North Carolina. His compositions have been premiered at the National Sawdust Festival in Brooklyn, the New Music Gathering at Peabody Conservatory, and the World Saxophone Congress in Strasbourg, France. His works have been described as being, quote, the product of a unique talent by Dmitry Terzakis, and he is frequently commissioned and performed by professional musicians around the world. When his pen isn't held to paper, he's an active performer concertizing classical recitals, gigs with jazz bands and musical theater productions, directs multiple ensembles, and premieres and records the music of fellow contemporary composers. He founded the Renaissance Saxophone Orchestra and Asheville Modern Big Band to extend his mission as collaborative performer. He's also curated the New Music Shelf Anthology of New Music for Alto Saxophone Volume 1, which was published in January of 2020. As, a, as if all of this wasn't enough, he also maintains an active writing schedule as a music theorist, he specializes in the analysis and pedagogy of post-1900 classical music, presenting award-winning research on these topics at national and regional academic conferences. He served on numerous executive and editorial boards, and has spent the last decade working on a book analyzing the latter music, later music, sorry, of Dutch composer Tristan Curis. He also pins a weekly online periodical exploring both his creative work and happenings in the broader new music community that we will also talk about here. So please welcome Dr. Alan Tyson. Woohoo! Hey, thanks for having me on, Bill. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for being here. It's it's a pleasure. And you know, I've uh, you know, thanks to Dr. Gibson for uh, you know the first introduction between us. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. 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 Mara Gibson is a fantastic composer, and I'm lucky to call her a friend. Yeah, she's amazing. She was, uh, she's also going to be on later today, actually. Uh, oh, great. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, say, hi, say, say hi to her for me. It's one of those double interview days for us. <laughs> fantastic. Well, I'm, uh, I'm honored to be uh, on, a, on a kind of a Saturday double bill with you. That's with her. That's really great. So, yeah. And, and for listeners, uh, we would just want to say uh, again, you won't hear Hillary today. Unfortunately, she's still fighting COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, so please keep her in your thoughts and prayers. She didn't do anything dumb, like go to a party or anything. Just, you know, uh, just dumb how luck. these things worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, a, fr- a friend of mine recently got COVID and she was so mad because she's been so careful. Yeah. Wearing a mask and social distancing and not going out. And, you know, she messaged me and she was like, wait, how is it that I got this? Exactly. <laughs> like oh god this sucks and you know thankfully she's made a, a full recovery uh which is great because she's a musician uh, who plays a wind instrument um oh wow yeah so it's it's out there and you know everybody please stay safe 
Um, Please do. And wear masks, people. It's not it's not a political thing. It's, it's, it's not a political thing. thing. <laughs> it's a smart science thing. Just yeah. wear a mask. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so All I'm right. looking forward to our conversation, Bill. This is great. Oh, me too. Me too. It's it's great and wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much. So let's just dive right in. And uh, sure thing, of course, man. Have to ask the question, you know, we all want to know, do you come from a very, like a musical family? Absolutely not. Um, okay. I'm, I'm the only professional musician um, in my nuclear or extended family. Um, and uh, in fact, I was the first person in my extended or nuclear family to go to college, get a four-year degree. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, so I'm a, I'm a first-gen college student, um, first-gen musician. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing. I didn't grow up in a musical household, but I grew up in a curious household. Okay. Um, my mom had a really fantastic, uh, stereo system and record player, and she had amassed quite, uh, a collection of vinyl, uh, from the sixties and seventies and eighties. And so, although I didn't grow up in a musical household I grew up in a music curious household oh, um, nice. now and by music curious I mean it you know it was exclusively you know pop and rock uh, right. but still had enough variety in it across enough decades that you know that, that that I grew up with that sense of curiosity where I was listening to Stevie Wonder, and I was listening to Michael Jackson. I was listening to uh, 70s classic rock and things mm. like that. Um, and even when I was really little, I, I would listen to different records and ask myself, okay, well, why does this sound this way? And why does this sound this way? Why do, you know, if I listen to a record by Stevie Wonder, why does it sound like Stevie Wonder? And if I listen to a record of, you know, Talking Heads, why does it sound like Talking Heads? Um, if I listen to David Bowie versus uh, Michael Jackson, why do these sound different? Right. And so that was the kind of curiosity that, that I grew up with. Um, and so um, I was a really introverted kid. Um, and I, I didn't start to come out of my shell until I joined band in seventh grade. And I only did it because it was something that my friends were doing. Mm -hmm. And so after a few years of that, I just started to take it a bit more seriously. And I became drum major for my high school band programs. Um, and then by my senior year, I thought, okay, well, maybe I want to go off and be a band director. Oh, okay. Um, and, when actually up until that point, I was, it was pretty deep into high school before I decided I wanted to try to make music a career. Uh, in fact, I wanted to be, a, I was thinking about physics. I was thinking about being an engineer uh, because I was a bit of a math whiz. Um, and so yeah, I, I even toyed around with the idea of history or English because I, I constantly had my nose stuck in a book. Um, and so music really for me was, was something, it wasn't some kind of destined family upbringing. Um, no, actually it was just, it was, uh, it was kind of a late in the game decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I went, okay, I guess I'll go be a band director. And even then, you know, I entered a music ed program at Southern Miss 
and by the end of my sophomore year, I was already like, nah, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> this. I don't, I don't want to be a band director anymore. Um, and so, you know, I really wanted to, to try being a composer, but there was no composition program and there wasn't even a music theory undergrad program at Southern Miss. Oh, and wow. I was I wasn't good enough to be a performer and do that track. Um, and I didn't want to do music ed. So I looked around, I was like, what other undergrad degrees in music do they offer? And there was a music history degree. So I said, screw it. I guess I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, but what, and my, my rationale was if I get an undergrad degree in music history, then I can absorb as much repertoire in this time as I possibly can and use that knowledge to help me be a composer. Nice. Nice. And then, uh, uh, you know, by the end of my undergrad, I, I got introduced to the idea of doing a music theory degree, uh, which again, I, I kind of fell into. I had mm-hmm. no, de- no interest innately in chasing a music theory degree. Um, I ended up doing that because I, I was just, I was good at music theory. And so I tutored fellow yeah. students during my undergrad and they were just starting a music theory program, master's program at Southern Miss. And they needed okay. a certain number of students to fill uh, the degree program in order to get it on its feet. And so um, I bumped into one of the music theory professors who was new at the time. And, and he said, oh, you just, you're Al Tyson, right? I said, yeah. And he said, well, you just graduated, right? I said, yeah. He said, are you doing anything next? And I was working in a liquor store. Oh, okay. that, was, that was the plan. I was going to work in a liquor store with my music history degree. And I, I was like, I, I really don't know what I'm going to do next. And he was like, well, hey, why don't you sign up and do a master's in music theory? We need students just to fill. Um, and, you know, we'll you, literally you'll have a tuition waiver. Oh, wow. And so I said, so a free master's degree? And he said, yeah, basically. Wow. And so, and, and, and I, I, so I said, sure. But the funny thing is I, I did so just thinking, okay, well, this will be a way to kill another two years before I figure out what to do next. And so, and then of course, by the end of that, I was like, oh, maybe I'll go off and get a, get a PhD in this. So it's, it, it sounds strange to say I really kind of stumbled through even graduate <laughs> school. I was like, yeah, sure. I guess I'll do this next. Why not? Um, and, but even though I stumbled into things when I made the commitment to do it, I said, okay, well, I'm going to do this at 110%. Yeah. Um, that was always my approach is be open to whatever happens next. But if I commit to doing something, then I'm going to do it completely all the way. Um, and that's what I ended up doing with my master's degree. And then with my PhD at Florida state. Uh, but no, uh, that was a, an incredibly long-winded way of answering your question. No, absolutely. <laughs> uh, my, my uncle, my uncle has a fine singing voice. Um, um, and, and, and has done a, a bit of, uh, church singing. Okay. Um, but that's, that's about it. You know, um, I'm the only person in my immediate, um, nuclear or extended family, uh, who, who is a professional musician. Um, even my two siblings, my sister sang in choir mm. for a bit. Uh, but, but yeah, that's about it. Wow. And you have a brother too, right? Yes, I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, And uh, my younger brother is an incredible uh, long distance runner. He does marathons and ultra marathons. Uh, 
which I can make it about an eighth of a mile before I get winded. I'm just going to let him have all that. And uh, my sister got a degree in uh, graphic design. Oh, cool. And visual art from Western Michigan. Uh, my brother got a degree in applied mathematics. Um, oh, wow. So yeah, three very different uh, career paths. You know, if you compare our three undergraduate degrees, it's music history and literature, applied mathematics and graphic arts or graphic wow. design. Yeah. That's so, very cool. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It makes for interesting uh, holiday gatherings. <laughs> I'm sure it does. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. I know that, um, you know, Hillary, she was an engineer at first and oh, then fantastic. All right. he was just like, she was getting bored of, you know, and the pressure and things. And so she remembered how much she loved music and saw that mm-hmm. they had like, a composition program at Montana and she's like, Hmm, I wonder what that involves and just kind of stumbled right. into that. You know, now she's got a master's from England for it, you know? And yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, and it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of composers I bump into have some other field that they could have easily gone into, or in yeah. fact were in before uh, they decided to pursue this. So yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. And to this day, when I compose, I still think about it. I still think about composing as engineering problems. Oh, okay. You know, where I, um, yeah, I, I, I take a look at every piece I write as, as, a bit of an, as a bit of a math problem or an engineering problem, uh, where I say, okay, well, these are the parameters that are involved. I have to start here. I have to get here. What's going to be the most efficient and impactful way of getting from point A to point B, where point A is the first sound we hear in a piece and point B is the last sound we hear in the piece. Mm. Um, so what's, what's the most impactful and effective way, given the materials that I have to work with of getting from here to here? Um, and every, every piece of mine starts that way. I, I pose it as a as a math problem, as an engineering problem. How do I, how do I do this in the most impactful way from here to here? I like that. I, I, you know, it's, I always co-relate um, music to food, you know? Okay. So <laughs> cool. yeah, yeah. I, for a while I was like tossed up between pre-law and, and culinary, you know? And oh, so, that's fantastic. And so I, you know, when I see all those rhythm things about food and, and uh, how to, you know, spaghetti and meatballs, or <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, Oh, that's so, I like the way that does. And I always thought of, you know, composing as a type of recipe and you know the cake that you see is actually built with these forms and this you know the ladder system and stuff so yeah yeah engineering is a cool way to look at it do you do you have a very lawful personality like where where i have a very kind of like uh equal and justice for like yes you know it's it's not black and white there's gray that we need to deal with and, right. you know, we need to look at some things 
but we need to look at it all equally and at the time that it happens. Right. So yeah, I I, I have a little theory that I'm working on, and it's not even a theory; it's a a little personality hypothesis that if you are inherently a a more lawful personality when you create, you tend to create a bit chaotically. Like you Duh. don't you don't want a recipe; you want to just throw everything in the pot and and see what happens. And I think if you have a chaotic personality, you tend to create in a very lawful way. I have a chaotic personality. Okay. Um, I, there's a certain amount of chaos I love in my life. And so mm. when I go to create, I'm like, ah, yes. <laughs> I, will, <laughs> I shall map everything out this way and, and adhere to those, to those laws. I love doing counterpoint exercises for fun. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Because, because I'd rather invite chaos into my life in a, in a, in a different way. Um, yeah, I hated so, like I remember Dr. Gibson was like, "Well, maybe you should sketch out this and, you know, yes. think about this and uh, uh you know, lay the pe- the paper this way instead of top, you know, longwise, lay it widewise and uh right. and sketch out like where are we going and then maybe what's this idea and things." And I was like, like, "Ew." No. <laughs> You're <laughs> like, "Why would to, I do that?" I didn't and want to see what happens. <laughs> Right. And, and meanwhile, when you describe that to me, I'm like, yes, that's how I do every one of my pieces. <laughs> like, I, I'm like, I could be exactly 37 seconds into a piece and know what will happen at the six minute mark. You know, like right. I just, that's, that's, and, and, and then the challenge for me then is to make the piece not sound contrived, right? right. That the, that, that I know that that's the scaffolding that's holding up the work, but I think if I've done my job right, the audience will never perceive that mm-hmm. the audience will just that's that scaffolding is there simply for me to erect the building. And then right. as soon as the building is done, I'll tear down that scaffolding and people will never see it. Right. Um, but that, you know, of course provides its own set of challenges. So I, I, yeah, I do not believe whatsoever that there's uh, an inherently uh better or worse way of going about creating. I, I, I think everybody finds the way of creating that I think to me is a bit opposite of what their personality is. Uh, Okay. So, so I, I think I enjoy that kind of scaffolding uh, when I go to create something because I inherently accept the chaotic nature of life. Um, And so, you know, the act of creation for me is a bit of a rebellion against that chaos. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, right. I'm thinking about some friends that I know and, you know, I'm thinking like, well, they are kind of chaotic in life and their music is very kind of rigid, not rigid, but like sketched out, you know, right. and I've seen right. them compose and they have like, okay, this is what's going to happen here. This is what's going to happen here. You right. know? And I yeah. always saw that and I was like, that, that seems very like constraining, you know, I, I'd right. rather just like spew it out and then fix and edit, you know? Exactly right. And so I think if you have a really law and order personality, when you go to create, you're like, well, this is the big sandbox. Why would I want to bring the, yeah. the, the, the law and order of my life into the sandbox? Um, and I think if you perpetually live in the sandbox, you're like, no, 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 I want to get out of the sandbox that I create <laughs> and, and give me some Legos with an instruction sheet and, and I can just work with the blocks that will only fit in a certain way. Oh, uh, yeah. But, you know, as with any kind of binary, this is horrifically reductionist. Um, but maybe that's the music theorist part of me too that's comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with you.
You know, so, there are two there are two types of people in the world. One that divides people into two groups of people, and <laughs> and then the one that does it, right? And then the others. Right? <laughs> So what got you overall interested in composing then? Um, any of the composing that I do tends to be really focused on situations or other people. Mm. Um, I find it very difficult to imagine if somebody gave me a big sack of money and then said, go create music whatever whatever kind of music you want just just go to a desert island create whatever music you want i think after a year i would end up just returning the money oh okay uh because i need a situation and i need people i thrive in those kinds of situations and it that's been the case since day one the very first thing i ever composed that was performed for people um, I, my senior year of high school, I was in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, um, okay. And I was Oberon. And uh, despite having never been in a play before, the chaotic part of my personality just one day saw the, the poster for auditions and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. I've never been <laughs> in a play before in my life. <laughs> right. And I'm going to choose a major role in Shakespeare to right. audition. Um, and and the, I got it. Uh, which severely pissed off uh, several of the kids in the drama club. Oh, I'm sure. Um, where I just walked into, I, I felt <laughs> Who like is this uh, guy? the character. <laughs> yeah, I felt like the character in Legally Blonde, uh, you know, where where she says, what, like it's hard? Right. Um, so I just like <laughs> rolled up in there and I'm like, oh, okay, sure. I'm, you just memorize shit and say it on stage? All right, right. fine. <laughs> With conviction? Okay, I guess I'll do that. Yeah, um, exactly. And so I, I got this role, but so anyway, we're going through, we're doing rehearsals and there's a section where the fairies are supposed to sing a song. And of course, Shakespeare provides the text, but we made it to that section. We kept making it to that section in the rehearsals and the group of fairies would say to the director, uh, who, was a, who was a teacher or a faculty member and said, well, what, we're supposed to sing this. What do we sing? And he's like, well, I don't know. And me being me, I was like, oh, I'll write something. And, and he said, okay, great. Have a, the director said, okay, great. Have it ready for tomorrow. I said, okay. And so I got <laughs> done with play uh, rehearsals and I went home and it was like seven o'clock at night. And, and I was like, oh my God, I have a few hours and I have to write a little song that goes along with, with these words. And so I did, I got on my little keyboard and I, I wrote a song and, and the next day, right after school got done, I gathered the fairies before play rehearsal start started and we went to the choir room um, and, and I taught it, taught the song to them by rote and we oh, just wow. looped it over and over and over and over until they just had it memorized. It was this little tune in F major and, but already had some like funky little chromatic things in it. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, I think it would be great to hear this tune, Right. 
And so uh, the, when we got to that scene in play rehearsal later that, that afternoon, the fairies said the word they, they sang, the tune that I taught them. And it got done and the director said, that's great, it's it. And so, you know, we did performances of the play and I remember very little of, of acting in that play. But what I still remember is even though I wasn't even in that scene when the fairies sang my song, everybody in the audience applauded um, in the uh, middle of the scene. And, and I went, yeah, I want to do more of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and even before then, throughout high school, you know, I, would, I was in jazz band. I would write little tunes and I had no idea what I was doing. And so I learned by, you know, I would write something out and then, and then take it to my high school jazz band and either before or after jazz band rehearsal we would take a few minutes and they would play through it and the trumpet player would tell me you're an idiot for writing this this high (laughs) and the bass player would be like you're an idiot because you didn't write chord symbols like this um and the trombonist would be like you're an idiot because my horn doesn't go that low (laughs) um and and but it was great i that's how i learned to write music was just my friends telling me that i was an idiot in various ways and then i went okay well check i now i know that that's how it's horrible on trumpet and it just angered my trumpet playing friend that i wrote this line for him consistently this high don't do that um and so that kind of started me on my path because I, I never enrolled in any kind of composition program. I never had a composition teacher even in 11 years of, of, of college. And so I just taught myself and I taught myself by studying scores. I went, well, gee whiz, you know, Brahms and Bartok and Ludoswatsky all do this with the clarinet and they don't do this with the clarinet. Okay, let me write a little something for clarinet. And I took it to a clarinet playing friend and they would play it in the practice room. And I would go, okay, well, in my mind, I would go, this worked, this worked, this didn't work, blah, blah. So I, over years, I just got used to the idea of writing music for other people and for specific situations where they would say, oh, Al, it seems like you're writing music. I have a junior recital coming up. Would you write us a duo to play so I could put on my recital? Yeah, sure. Boom. I would write it for that specific situation. Here it performed, take stock of what worked and what didn't, write another piece. Um, and so I kind of had this, my training as a composer was a bit functional and nuts and bolts. Yeah. It wasn't this kind of precious hot house, you know, orchid growing in this, you know, Mold you from nothing kind of into right, and then you work on this piece for six months, and then you you know maybe you'll try to get it performed. I, I had a really functional approach to learning how to write music. Um, it was bang out a piece, hear it performed almost immediately. If it works, it works. I tried to take stock of what worked and what didn't, and if it didn't work, it blew up in my face in front of a, an audience. Right. And that was powerful. Those were, those were the best composition lessons I ever received in my life were writing pieces that were performed in front of people that sucked. And then I went away and I licked my wounds and I went, okay, what did I learn from that? Well, yeah. I learned, you know, if you're writing for a choir, do not do X and Y and Z because that's how it sounds. Um, and so that kind of boot camp experience with learning how to write music stuck with me 
because now I, I, I thrive when I'm writing music for other people or specific situations. Hey, Al, we need music for X and we need it by tomorrow. Great. I'm your guy. Yeah. Um, you know, Duke Ellington said, I don't need inspiration. I need a deadline. And mm. I've never vibed harder with a statement. Oh, yeah. I need a de- Well, except these days, it's a deadline and a paycheck. But um, <laughs> I'm like, you know, oh, it's like, where do you get your in, where, where do you get your inspiration from, Dr. Tyson? I'm like, usually zeros on a check. Um, and I, it's, I happen to be more inspired the more zeros there are after a certain digit. Um, yeah. That gets the that gets the muse just singing to me. Oh, um, definitely. Um, or when somebody says, hey, I have a concert coming up in three months at this killer venue. Can you write me something in that time? I'm like, I'm already hearing ideas. Say yeah. no more, click. Um, so, so yeah, I, um, that's, I, I, I get a lot of inspiration for writing for particular situations um, and, and it, under certain constraints. I find that just terribly exciting. Yeah, I mean, I've, I had a, I, so I won a commission from a group in New Orleans and because of COVID and everything, it keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. Right, right. And so I find myself just going, I got time. Yes. You know? And then I know that the moment they're like, okay, it's set for this day. We need the parts by this day. A week before that, I'll be like, okay, done. You know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's, I think there's great power um, to, for me, at least in, in terms of thinking of composition, um, I, I I like to think of myself uh, as as a craftsperson more than an artist. I like to think of what I'm doing as as uh, being a carpenter. I have raw yeah. materials. Oh, you want a chair? Great, come back tomorrow. I'll build you a chair. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit around with a pile of wood and be like, oh, what what magnificent work of art could I possibly create? <laughs> exactly. It's like, no, I need. I need somebody to show up and be like, yo, I need a chair for my dining room because this one broke. Here's a hundred bucks. Build me a chair. I'll be like, great. See you in 48 hours. You know, yeah, yeah. that's, that's how I view what I do as a composer. Um, and I think it comes from how I learned to compose. Yeah. I learned to compose through trial and error and not having my music on student composers concerts, but on recitals yeah the first piece that i wrote at when when i was a freshman um during uh, my undergrad my saxophone professor knew that i was interested in composing and said hey i still don't have my i still don't have my uh unaccompanied piece picked out for next fall's recital write me an unaccompanied piece that's five minutes and i'll put it on wow and so the first piece that I had performed during my undergrad was not part of some student composer's concert or something like that. It was on a faculty member's recital. And it was put side by side with works in the repertoire. Yeah. And I knew that. And I went, okay, well, I have to write a piece that's going to be worthy of this level of a performer and worthy of these other kinds of works that are going to be presented on that recital. That was the very first piece I wrote that was performed during my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And it set a very different 
type of learning how to write music and a very different, frankly, threshold for the kind of work I wanted to create because I wasn't competing with my peers or my buddies. I was competing with, you know, monster repertoire for the saxophone yeah. in it that I knew well. Um, and, you know, likewise, the first orchestral piece that I ever had performed was not again, part of a reading session. It wasn't part of a, you know, a, a student demo concert. Um, it was an, an orchestra in Poland uh, wow. perfor it performed uh, a work of mine. And the other three composers on the program uh, were Glazunov, Ravel, and Brahms. Oh, wow. And again, that, that just, it, that hit different when I went, oh, yeah. okay, that's, if that's the league you aspire to, you have to go forth and write music that will hold its own against that. That's the threshold. Go do that. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of times when people ask me who my composition teachers were, I'm like, oh, man, I had amazing composition teachers. Um, I had Brahms. I had Ravel. <laughs> I had Bartok. I had, you know, and so that's. I, I like to think of of those those people as my quote unquote composition teachers because, in fact, that's I, I learned how to write music by studying scores mm -hmm. um, and and getting my ass kicked trial and error style. Yeah, and and man, that was fun. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it was. I don't know if I recommend it for everybody, <laughs> but it was it, it was the path that worked for me. Yeah. Because yeah. I like to just do things, get my ass handed to me. And then those are the lessons I learn best and hardest. And then I try it again and yeah. see what works and see what didn't. Uh, different personality types need different paths. And I think the universe did me a favor by providing me the path that I needed. Um, be, especially since when I was younger, I tended to over, over analyze everything I think if I'd been in a traditional composition program, it just would not have worked out well for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think I would have overanalyzed myself to death. Yeah. I think I would have beat myself into a non-creative oblivion. Yeah. Um, but but just getting getting my ass handed to me over and over um, was was nice, you know, and then. Yeah gradually the ratio of what sucked versus what didn't got better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know? Oh yeah. I was talking to uh, Paul Novak last night. Um, he's cool. going to the university of Chicago right now, but he had a moment where he was in Thailand for this, this young composers workshop at a Barafa Thailand. And um, they go there, they learn, they live there for like two weeks and he learns about these traditional Thai instruments and then writes a piece for them. And it's just, awesome. just getting out of that whole mindset and just being open to failing horribly, you know? Yes. And he's, and I was like, how much did that change your music when you came back? He's, you know, and I don't want to spill too much cause he is an episode, but, <laughs> 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 but it, it's, it's, you have to be open to doing that kind of thing, you know, where you just, sometimes you're going to fall on your face and then you just have to pick yourself up and get back on it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, seven years ago, um, I was in a really kick-ass um, avant punk jazz group oh, uh, cool. here in Asheville. Um, and again, like that's that's stuff that I wish more composers had access to because it was like, okay, I I got to I got to hear music that people had written the day before. Yeah. in that group and then workshop it for maybe 10 minutes and then play it in front of a boisterous bar crowd that night. And let me tell you, when you're writing shit for a group that is playing for a bar crowd every right. Tuesday and Sunday night, that bar crowd will let you know in a <laughs> damn hurry if you're doing hip shit or not. Right. 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 There's no polite applause there. Nope. <laughs> yeah there's no there's no backstage oh i really liked your piece i thought it was interesting from that crowd right they'll just they will boo your ass they'll be like play something hip you know Um, this sucks it yes yeah and and it's it's crazy you know i would write a tune and then like people would not vibe like even and and again like if you could write something for the group and the group might even dig it but then the crowd wouldn't and then the leader of the band would be like, we're not doing this. Yeah. Like that, that's it. It's cut from the rotation. And then, you know, so I, and then I would like try writing another thing and, you know, the band would dig it and then the crowd would dig it. And then the, the band leader would be like, all right, we're going to pull up that chart next time. And next time, Oh, it's going on the album. It's the, like, it's a completely different way of thinking about how you go about creating and mm-hmm. who, what you're creating is for. Yeah. Um, and um, it's it's really empowering to me, yeah. at least. It's really empowering to get out of your own damn head, you know, and stop thinking that, you know, uh, that, that, that you're the most important person in the room when you're creating music. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. Because, you know, what we do as composers can get, you know, are awfully fart sniffy. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know where yeah. if you if if you're the only one in the car on a 15 hour long road trip, you know, you don't realize how bad the inside of your car smells until you get out <laughs> and and someone's like, oh my God, you what definitely died? had yeah, you definitely <laughs> had hot wings for lunch 12 hours ago, didn't you? You know. <laughs> and meanwhile, you don't this is a gross metaphor, but it's like you don't notice, right? right and right, I right. think I think as composers, you've got to get out of your own hot box, right? Get out. You've got to get input from other people and and have folks that you know and folks that you don't know be like, this stinks. <laughs> like try yeah. again. It's like, yeah. I, I don't vibe with this. Write something hipper. <laughs> right. I've, I've been watching these YouTube series on uh, the deconstruction of um, hip hop songs. You know, nice. some of the best hip hop songs by Drake and J. Cole and Kendrick and stuff. And he, you know, they interview the producers that wrote the actual music behind the lyrics. And they'll say stuff, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, like, J. Cole called me up, like, 15 he's like you got to be down here in 30 minutes i need a beat for my album uh and i hope you got something you know yeah they go down to that to the studio he just pulls stuff together next thing you know it's you know middle child and it's this huge success yep you know and he's like 
man, that was, that was one of those things I was like tempted to throw away. And now look at it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You need other people to, to, to get their input. I mean, again, I'm just speaking from my own experience, but the idea of being the, the isolated genius who is coming up with music, I just, it's kind of whack to me. Um, I would, I would rather collaborate and workshop stuff. You know, I, it's, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast, um, where the guest was Alex Lacamoire and he was talking about the tune Skylar sisters from Hamilton. Yeah. And the whole point of this episode of the podcast is that he was going through different drafts of it. Mm. And you know, that, that song, even if you don't like Hamilton, you could listen to that song and it bangs real hard. It has this yeah. killer like nineties, you know, girl group R and B vibe to it. You know, it's like some peak and Vogue uh, or TIC <laughs> stuff, which yeah. it, I mean, it just, it, it slaps. And and so, and you hear that tune, you're just like, oh my God, this is just, this is a killer tune in that, in that style. And he's like, yeah, what ended up in the musical was like version 27 wow. of that song. And he's just like, we tried doing this for the intro. We tried doing this for the intro. This is what the beat sounded like here. And, and you're listening to it. You're like, this, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I would not want to hear this song. And so it was fascinating to be like, even songwriters at the top of their game are like, yeah, like it took us 27 tries before we got it right. And even after it went to Broadway, we were still like, ah, no, what if what if these four bars did this instead? And that's one of the things that's incredible about musical theater composers is that they have to be collaborative. I just, I think that composers could learn so much about studying composition from a craft and collaborative viewpoint. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to... And to put your stuff in front of crowds that are kind of hostile, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, or or at least brutally honest, where they're like, "I'm not going to clap for that," you know. Whereas, right. you know, if you're writing a piece every nine months and putting it in front of a crowd that will always kind of politely applaud, even if they think it sucks, man. Yeah. All right. I mean, that's that's one approach to it, but again, I think you're. I think that's a little uh, hot boxy, not, not, <laughs> not in a good way. You're sniffing your own farts at a certain point. Right. But, you know. the first experiences I ever had was um, like you is a musical theater and we we're doing a production of Peter Pan and it was to like the mermaid scene as like a they needed like a little interlude and like who can write music and the director was like well I mean Bill kind of you're taking lessons right, right? and I was right. like well I'm like first semester but I'll try you know 
Right. And it was it was so cool. And looking back at it, it's still like one of my favorites, even though it's never performed. But it's just like it's you know that push that kind of throw you in the deep end. Let's see if you swim, kind of thing. It's just it's freeing. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to be really clear. I I am a firm believer in composition teachers and yeah. composition pedagogy. Um, I, I'm, I'm a huge believer in that. And in fact, you know, there are so many lessons that I learned the hard way that I probably wouldn't have had to have learned the hard way if I right. had a, a stable composition mentor program. Uh, but I, I do think there's also something to be said for collaborating, putting your music in front of audiences that don't have to give a crap about you, uh, who will give you brutal, honest feedback, whether you want it or not. Right. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for that. But Yeah, it's, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I definitely want to talk about the Tyson project you got going on. Yeah, yeah. It, it's such a cool, um, oh, what is, what's the old word, the enzyme or not enzyme, but uh Remember the old early internet magazine? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, um, I yeah, the, the Tyson project is now nine issues in. Um and and the tenth one will come out this Wednesday. And I just over over the summer, um, I had gotten to the point where I was getting really itchy to write. Mm-hmm. And I've you know, I'm definitely on social media a lot. And I found myself getting to a point where I was using social media kind of as a brain dump. And I would just be like tweeting any dumb thought that went through my head. And I stopped and I was like, okay, this, it was tempted to misread it as an addiction to social media. And I'm like, no, it's not an addiction to social media. It's that I'm using social media as an outlet for another deeper impulse. And that deeper impulse was to write more stable, permanent, long-form work. Um, And which is something I used to do, you know, during, during my undergrad, my master's and doctorate and the the early part of my professorial careers, I was doing a lot of long-form writing because I was writing conference papers. I was writing journal articles. I was writing reviews and stuff like that. And I kind of got away from that. And I, I looked into my heart and I realized that I was missing that, that that was mm. a, and it was, it was manifesting as a social media addiction, me constantly right. like wanting to post. And I went, okay, well, if you write something that's long form just once a week, I bet your urge to do that kind of social media brain dumping will go down. Um, and so far, uh, 10 weeks into it, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, and I've and, noticed that little decline. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I feel the need to be on social media constantly, uh, less and less, the more I'm focused on writing long-form essays. And so um, with uh, the Tyson Journal, I wanted it to be a, a place every Wednesday in the middle part of the week. Um, the middle part of the work week that I could shine a light on things that I'm seeing in the new music community around me or, or the, the broader music community in general stuff that I'm working on stuff that, it, that um, projects of mine that have come to fruition. Um, 
And so I just figured it would be a really fun thing to do every Wednesday um, or to release a new issue every Wednesday. And also, I look, there's a lot of negative stuff that we can look at in the world right now. And I wanted to provide a stable platform every Wednesday where I got to point out something good that was happening, where I got to call attention to someone's work uh, that I thought was really interesting and joyful. Um, And so, yeah, uh, the Tyson Journal started as a way for me to reconnect with with longer form writing, um, with pointing to interesting topics and people and occurrences in the in the field of new music um and also to try to bring a little positivity into trying times Um, yeah and so yeah i'm having a blast doing it um i'm working already with um, a media company in germany um to start producing high quality videos um like maybe once every four or five issues oh cool Uh, there's a lot of really great directions that I'm, I'm going to take uh, this in and, and combine long form writing with uh, really slickly produced uh, video projects. The video projects part will probably start getting rolled out in the early spring 2021. Oh, cool. Um, but yeah, every, every Wednesday, um, and, and I'm, I'm committed to making the Tyson Journal issues that come out every Wednesday completely free. Oh, charge. awesome. Um, I may tie in, you know, eventually uh, Patreon. Right, right. Or, um, you know, exclusive purchased content. Uh, but I'm pretty committed to the idea that the Wednesday issues will forever be free. And then there could be, you know, there will emerge paid content um, that will come out probably every Saturday. Okay. Um, and, but that's, that's stuff that'll happen here in a couple of months. Uh, but yeah, I'm having a blast with the Tyson Journal. I'm getting some really beautiful feedback. Um, so yeah, and it's hosted on my website. And again, I intend on keeping every Wednesday issue completely free of charge. I want everybody to have access to that. Yeah, I, I love that idea, especially, um, you know, you, we talked briefly about this before we recorded, but just uh, going ballbusters in right off the bat. And yes. you did that, like your first episode or first episode, first article right. is all about writing for band. And it's just, right. you know, that's, I've always wanted like to write for band and choir right. or, and or choir, but I've always been too scared to go into those areas. Right. Right. It just seems so daunting. Cause it's like, right. I don't have strings to deal with. So I don't know what to do. I don't, right. you know what? I don't want to tax too many people, you know, bands, they come in different sizes. You got yes. some people that have like, three or four percussionists then you got other ones that have, like at Ithaca or Eastman that have got like 10, 10 12 percussionists yeah. like, you know <laughs> right. so it's like who the hell do I write for <laughs> right right exactly exactly and so you know and I that's I'm a huge uh evangelist uh and rabble rouser to get composers to write for wind ensemble band or whatever you want to call it um you know, I think it's an incredible medium and, and one that ban- or that composers should, should definitely be interested in. Um, and so, but that, that's the thing. Every time I went to a composer buddy, I was like, oh my gosh, you've got to write for band. Uh, they would usually say exactly that. Well, if I haven't written for band before, it seems really daunting. And so yeah. I, I knew what I wanted the first issue of the Tyson Journal to be was my, 
you know, with, with examples, my top 10 tips to start writing for band. Um, and sure enough, I felt really good about it that um, some veteran band composers and arrangers contacted me and said, yo, Al, you really kind of nailed it. These are really, these are 10, you know, really great tips. And that, that made me feel really good. Oh, that's um, cool. But I felt even better that people who hadn't written for band saw this and went, wow, this is a really great resource. Thank you so much. I'm feeling way more empowered uh, to write for band. Um, and that at the end of that issue of top 10, I included a quote unquote bonus tip, which was basically just a big ass listening list. Yeah. And I said, I said, here you go. Here are three pieces. Go listen to them. And I think of the 30 pieces, one of the only one of the works is written by a white dude. Um, and so I, I definitely wanted to say, look, this this is available uh, to to anybody as a composer. Um, and and so, yeah, that was I I love the idea of hard launches. Right. You know, you right. and I were talking about how I abhor soft openings and I was yeah. like, all right. <laughs> Well, if I'm going to do the Tyson Journal, I'm going to commit to doing it for at least one year, every single Wednesday, without fail, even if it's the day before Thanksgiving, there's going to be content out, um, and I'm going to try to do something interesting and different every single Wednesday. Yeah. Um, and I'm having a blast doing it. It's it's a lot of fun. It's invigorating. There are times where it gets to be Monday morning, and I'm kind of already in oh shit mode. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, usually just like... I, just as I am with a composer, usually that that uh, feeling of oh shit usually produces something that's that's really fantastic because usually by that Monday night I'm 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 in the zone and right chucking away at it. So that's a lot of fun. So I'm yeah. glad you're digging it, man. I appreciate. Oh, that. oh, I love it. I you know the when I read that first episode, that first article, I was just like, this seems it makes it seem so much easier. Um, you know, cause like I've heard sure. the same things like, you know, the woodwinds you could do with subfamilies or you could do, right. you know, make sure watch what you do with the rests and don't ignore the euphonium and tenor and stuff. Right. Right. But like to think of the clarinets, like I thought of them as strings, but then to include the trombones in that. Yeah. I was like, Oh, what a cool idea, you know? That's that's the core, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and again, what another thing that was really beautiful about creating that top 10 list for me uh, was again, these uh, a lot of these were just lessons I learned the hard way. Right. You know, where I mean there are pieces over the past 20 years that I could point to where I went, damn, that passage sure didn't work. And I figured out. <laughs> And I figured out why it didn't work. And I went, all right, well, that's a, that's a tip to remember from now on, you know, like in terms of scoring the woodwinds and subfamilies, you know, where, right. yeah. So a lot of the stuff in that first issue is literally um, information that I acquired by getting my butt kicked. Right. Know? And hearing arrangements or original compositions of mine where I went, woof, that's a stinker. That didn't, that didn't land at all. All right, let me go back to the drawing board. What did I, what lessons did I learn from getting my ass handed to me on that one? Um, right. And I definitely love the, the very first tip you give, which is make space for resonance. Cause yeah, it's, that's you know, huge. I, I, I think of resonance when I think of um, either like a huge orchestra or a choir even, you know, right. And, you know, having some choir experience performing in like a cathedral or a church or something that can resonate for a while. I never, 
think the same logically when it comes to a wind band or a concert band right. or whatever, you know? Yes. And that's, you know, that's, I, yeah, I think that was one of the very first tips. Isn't that tip number one? Yes. Yeah. And, and because to me, if, if, if anybody takes anything away from that, that issue of the Tyson journal, it's, it's that one, um, you know, uh, when, when we think about band pieces that work versus band pieces that don't, to me, it has very little to do with style or dissonance or anything like that. You can write monstrously dissonant stuff for a wind band and it will still resonate. Yeah. If you're thinking about where you're placing those dissonances and how much space exists between your lower tone or tones and everything above it. Um, so even if you ignore everything else in that issue, if you like bear in mind what I'm saying in that number one tip, um, I think you're ready for band is going to be uh, popping. I think it's going to have impact um, oh, cool. in a way that uh, it may not. So that's, that's just something that I hear in band pieces that work, no matter what their style is. Uh, it, you know, you could be Alfred Reed or John Mackey or Carl Husa. Um, yeah. I think all three of those composers know how to write for band because they know what they're doing in terms of resonance. Mm. Um, and that's, that makes a huge difference. So, yeah, we just, we, uh, Hillary and I just spoke with, um, uh, Kathy Lakuta. Yes. And, uh, talked to her about like how she composed for band and yeah. you know, what she did. And she, she was like you, she's like, a lot of it was trial and error, Yes, you know, and just figuring out what I like and what I didn't like. And then just, my signature now you know and yeah. luckily since wind and contrabands are so under composed for in a way right compared to orchestra you know right. right it's there's so much need for new pieces so yeah i mean another composer um whose work in general i will cheerlead for till my dying day but especially her stuff for band is jen jolly oh yeah um God, like I just anytime somebody's like, "Hey, how should I write music?" I'm like, "Judge Ali here." <laughs> but especially, I mean, her band music, um, especially uh, the stuff that that she's been creating recently, just knocks my socks off. Um, yeah, and, and again, you want to talk about a composer who fundamentally understands resonance and mm-hmm. space and how to create wind band textures that just sparkle um yeah she's great oh yeah i i was you know sometimes i like to think back in my life and i'm like oh what if i did this and thinking what if i studied with with dr jolly and you know right. texas tech and yeah like, yeah oh how cool would that have been <laughs> we we're we're literally uh we were born in the same year we're both 1981 kids oh okay um and damn i still think that i'm like <laughs> I feel like text her and be like, Jen, can I take lessons? <laughs> oh, I know. I thought about sending like, her email. You should. You should, man. She's so she's so smart. She knows she knows what she's doing in spades. It's great. Yeah. And she actually she really helped me when I was starting to do the whole job application for her. Oh, fuck And just like she went over my CV and she's like, okay, we need to fix this. Let's just Yeah, that's great, man. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's useful skill. My last question for you is uh, I know you talked about this a little bit with Adam, but um, I have really gotten into scotch and whiskey. Oh, all right. And I, I'm, a, I'm still a baby, still new to it. Uh, the last thing I got was this. 
Nice. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, like I, I love it, but you had, we were talking about a very peaty scotch. Yeah. So, um, I was just hoping you might be able to give some tips, some recommendations, that kind of thing. Oh yeah, sure. If you, um, okay. Top five scotches under a hundred bucks. Well, here we go. Right. Okay. Top five scotches under a hundred dollars that I would recommend. I got my notepad um, too, so I'm ready. All right. Uh, and I can, I can, I can definitely, uh, you know, after we get done recording, I could definitely, I could definitely write this up and, and send it to you in an email. Um, <laughs> the Port Charlotte, uh, Bruchladig, uh, tenure. Okay. Is really, really fantastic. Um, again, something that's really peaty. If you, if you're into smoke and peat would be, uh, the Ardbeg tenure. I would definitely recommend that. Um, not peaty, but I find it complex and caramelly and perfect for winter months would be the Balvini 14-year Caribbean cask. Okay. That's really fantastic. I highly recommend that. Um, Glenfiddich 18-year. I think you could probably score that for under a hundred. I think that's an under a hundred bottle. Um, one more. Um, the Glenmore and G Nectar Door is re- I I love that. I love that. Um, okay, perfect. So those would be five. Those would be my top five under a hundred dollar a bottle Scotch recommendations. And they go from being pretty peaty to being not peaty. Um, so I think there would be something on that list for every palette. Awesome. So that, yeah. there you go. There's there's my top five. I love it. Uh, yeah. Scotches I, under $100 a bottle. Nice. Nice. I mean, we, uh, living in Louisiana, we were like, we started, you know, had Crown and Johnny Red. and Yeah, right, right. Um, so it, it's, I definitely wanted to try new things and discover more. So I was like, I know Alan likes to talk about this stuff. 100%. 100%. <laughs> um, the pianist James Iman okay. is really fantastic. You should have him on a, as a guest and also ask him the same thing. Okay. Yeah, there's, there is a man who knows and loves his scotches. Um, so of the five, I just mentioned to you, I have at least two in my bar right now. Oh, cool. So yeah, I, I'm practicing what I preach. Those are, those are really fine bottles. In fact, now that you mentioned it, um, I think I might go out and pick up a third. There There you go. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here. No, thank you. This is so awesome. I love the podcast. Keep it going. Keep oh, thank going you. Strong and uh, keep, uh, keep after it. I, I've loved where you're, what you've done, and I look forward to where you're going to take it from here. So thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon, where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, 
discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at soundsoftheworldpodcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs>